Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati, Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Head on over to the website. It's TravelingCulturati.com. And you want to follow us on social media and join in on the fun by joining the Travel Club. Yes, you want to be the first to know when we're on the go and we're going to some fantastic places. I also want to see what you're doing. So make sure you follow me on social media. We'll have some chats and we'll, you know, be some (laughs) looky-loos and stalk each other on social media. But you can't do it until you follow us. Well, Labor Day is upon us. Yes, can you believe it? Time is flying so quickly. And that means so many things. The end of summer is near. Children go back to school. Cooler days are ahead. Less sunlight and... uh, There's a whole lot more to discuss. But there's another part of Labor Day that many don't speak of, and that is the Black history of Labor Day. So I have a special guest who's going to join me a bit later because today we're talking all things Labor Day. We're going to talk about last minute trips, where the deals are, and my special guest is going to be Kenny Burns, founder of KB Tours. He's going to share some Black history and places to visit in Washington, D.C., also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. Starting with American Airlines, you know, the airline industry is getting kind of fed up with bad behavior. So there's an airline pilot who took it upon himself to forego the standard greeting that we get from pilots, you know. Hello, folks. (laughs) They always want to give us the weather and tell us what a great flight we're going to have. But in this case, this pilot said enough is enough. So he wanted to address some other things during his public address on flight. Basically, passengers behaving badly because air travel in the past few years have been a lot to deal with. Unruly passengers, behavior rose 47% between 2021 and 2022. This is according to Air Transport Association. And let's be honest, we weren't exactly starting from a baseline of good behavior to begin with. The most common transgressions on board are refusal to follow flight crew instructions. And then there's verbal abuse and public intoxication. And we all have TikTok or Instagram, Facebook or Twitter to thank for firsthand experience of these things. The public does not hear, however, about 99% of would-be incidents that are resolved by flight attendants and those that go without incident or event. Association of Flight Attendants President Sarah Nelson said that when that report came out last month, we de-escalate conflict as aviation's first responders or nearly every flight. That's something to consider, nearly every flight. One pilot on an American Airlines flight came up with a simple solution, and that was to change his public address. Instead, what he said was, these were his expectations that he started with, my will is what matters. Rule number one, do what the flight attendants tell you to do. There's a law about this, but as this captain says, they represent my will in the cabin, and my will is what matters. Overall, be polite. I shouldn't have to say this. 
and people should know to treat people the way they want to be treated. But I have to say it every flight because people don't. They're selfish and rude and I won't have it. Stow your stuff. Don't lean on other people. Don't fall asleep on other people. Don't pass out on other people. Use your AirPods or headphones instead of playing videos so everyone else can hear them. <laughs> and finally, for passengers in the middle seat, you own both armrests. <laughs> A passenger who was on that captain's flights posted it on Instagram and it garnered 6.1 million views. So, yes, that's a lesson for all of us to learn, and it's a shame that the pilot had to make those announcements. More news with American Airlines. They have sued an online travel agency, Skiplagged Incorporated, over allegations that the agency deceives customers. Though the airline does not have the right and ability to cancel tickets, in the lawsuit filed this past Thursday in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas, American Airlines claims Skiplagged deceives the public by claiming to issue valid tickets despite not having authority to form and issue a contract on American Airlines' behalf. The suit alleges that Skiplagged is not an agent of American Airlines and thus the airline can cancel any tickets issued by the travel agency. Skiplag employs unauthorized and deceptive ticketing practices, entices customers to participate in this deceptive ticketing practice by promising savings and then doesn't deliver, according to the suit. American Airlines claims Skiplag also deceives customers into thinking they are accessing a loophole. But many of the fares listed on Skiplag's website are higher than they booked a ticket on American Airlines' website or through an authorized agent. It is the classic bait and switch. Draw customers in with the promise of secret fares and instead sell the customer a ticket at a higher price, according to the suit. Skip lagging is a practice where travelers book a flight that includes at least one stop, but they leave the plane during a layover. While generally this is not illegal, airlines claim the practice violates their policies. In a recent statement, American Airlines said skip lagging, also known as hidden city ticketing, can lead to issues with checked bags and prevents other customers with urgent travel needs from booking seats, intentionally creating an empty seat that could have been used by another customer or team member is an all around bad outcome. Skip lagged allegedly hides its activity and tells customers to hide it from American Airlines, according to the suit. The suit also claims Skip Lagged pretends to be a customer and buys tickets on American Airlines' website, violating the airline's contractual terms of use, which states the tickets sold on the airline's website are only for personal and non-commercial use. The suit alleged Skip Lagged is misusing American Airlines' trademark to suggest it is American's authorized agent and committing trademark and copy right infringements. American Airlines will continue to lose control over its reputation and goodwill due to skipped lags practices, according to the suit. American Airlines requested that skip lag be prohibited from publishing American Airlines flight content, selling or reselling American Airlines tickets, accessing American Airlines website for commercial use, acting as an agent for American, or displaying Americans' trademarks and copyrights.
Skip Legged, based in New York, has faced suits before from airlines including United and Southwest. Now, here's an interesting topic, a story that I came across. Should you tip flight attendants? Well, I want to share what some experts are saying, but I'm going to tell you what I kind of think. I am so over the tipping. First of all, I don't carry a lot of cash with me. We're really entering into a cashless society, although many other countries are not. I discovered this through my summer travels in Europe, oftentimes not being able to tip on credit card and not having cash with me and often feeling a bit embarrassed by it. But I digress. Different topic. I am just really over tipping. Should we tip flight attendants? And I say no. There's a lot of debate about who should tip and how much we should tip. And I will say something else. And again, I'm getting completely away from the article. But as you can see, this is a sore topic for me. I think that as Americans and our culture that is deeply rooted in tipping, we are influencing other nations and at least as tourists or as visitors to a country they then expect that we tip heavily more so than anyone else because they know of our tipping culture here in the united states so if a standard is 10 percent, they will frown upon an american for tipping just 10 percent versus a 20 percent or better because we tip so much. But also consider you may think of yourself, oh, I'm a great tipper, I'm a big tipper, but understand that the more you over tip or are that big or bigger tipper, it then starts setting a new trend. And this is why, in my opinion, we have reached a standard tip of 20 to 25% versus what used to be 10 to 15%. Remember 15% used to be on the high end? Now it's frowned upon. But anyway, as I said, I digress from the article. A lot of the experts are really saying that they really do not feel that flight attendants should be tipped. The head of the Association of Flight Attendants, Sarah Nelson, has said that their jobs have historically been objectified and sexualized, and it's okay for someone to harass us if they hand us a tip. So. In her opinion, tipping would just create another type of culture where people will feel a bit more entitled to be disrespectful if they're tipping. And I agree 100%. However, politeness, being grateful or gracious, saying thank you, being appreciative, those are the things that go a very long way, according to Sarah Nelson, the head of the Association of Flight Attendants. Now, talking about tipping, I do have a bit of a pet peeve, and others are kind of on the same bandwagon with me. There's an article in Eater Chicago, Ashok Selvam is the editor of Eater Chicago and a native Chicagoan and more than two decades an award-winning journalist who now covers restaurants around the world and food. But there is an article that was written and a spreadsheet that was done from Chicago diners who are not so happy about all the restaurant fees. And when I say fees, they're separate from tipping, but tipping all the same because these fees aren't replacing the tips. So we're just seeing these fees increase, 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 and still being expected to tip. So a nice evening out gets to be very expensive. Let's go back to these fees. And what this article is saying is that people are really upset about them. They created a Google sheet of Chicago restaurants that utilize service fees. 
And diners in Los Angeles have done the same thing. The Chicago spreadsheet itself is a growing mess of more than 100 restaurants with tallying fees from 2.5% to 25%. There's one restaurant, about the 25%, uh, restaurant in Logan Square. And they said that they do not make their 25% surcharge obvious, according to some people, but they say that they're very upfront about it. The sheet also doesn't distinguish between fees assessed for credit card transactions or money that allegedly would go toward employee health insurance. Yes, we're seeing so that our servers can have health insurance. We're adding this fee. Independent restaurants and groups like Let Us Entertain You enterprises aren't separated either. Lettuce has been a target for diners who are angry about service fees as Chicago's largest restaurant company added the fee to offset costs associated with the pandemic. But these pandemic fees have not gone away. Some have added 3%. Some have just added a fee and said, this is just because of the pandemic. And again, they've now changed the name of the fee, but they haven't taken it away. The backlash of the service fees is creeping up in conversations across the country, reflecting that many customers are feeling the pinch of post-pandemic price inflation. While service fees existed before 2020, many restaurants began deploying them regularly during the pandemic, arguing often with polite fine print and sometimes hidden fine print that they needed the fee to offset costs due to inflation and of course because of the pandemic well that's all i've got for travel news and when i come back we're talking all things labor day where to go what to do and where the deals are and some black history about labor day this is traveling culturati we explore cultures and destinations we share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure so go ahead and up your travel game with traveling culturati visit travelingculturati.com for more information are you planning to travel Looking for connections with airlines, resorts, hotels, cruise ships, new fashions, or places for family reunions and getaways? Join us October 7th and 8th, 2023 for the Port of Go International Destination and Travel Expo. It's taking place at the Renaissance Convention Center in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. The Port of Go is your all-things travel expo designed for everyone to discover where to go and the best deals. To learn more, visit portofgo.com. That's P-O-R-T of go.com. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. You want to go there and you want to make sure you join the travel club because we go to some fantastic places. Also, follow us on social media so that we can see what you're up to, places that you're visiting, and you can also stay abreast of what we're doing as well. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. The most common questions for a canceled or delayed flight are the following. One, if my flight is canceled, am I entitled to a refund? The short answer is yes, but accepting a rebooking option will void the refund that the airline would otherwise have provided to you. So wait it out. If that itinerary doesn't work for you, by law, you are entitled to a full refund. However, every airline has a different policy for offerings. So check the airline you are traveling on for their specific policy. The second question is, do delays come with some type of compensation? Well, 
there's no law requiring airlines to compensate passengers for delays, so most do not. The minute the flight is delayed, however, get in that line to talk to a flight agent and, at the same time, take out your phone and call the airline. The phone agent can be even more helpful than the person at the airport. Now, when delays happen after boarding is completed, guidelines do stipulate that airlines can keep passengers waiting on a tarmac for up to three hours. But within two hours, you have the right to food, water, and access to the bathroom. Now, what do I do if my flight is overbooked and I get involuntarily rebooked? If you're involuntarily rebooked or unbooked from a flight, there's significant compensation available to you. For example, if the flight you've been rebooked on is within one to two hours after your initial flight, up to 200% of a one-way fare is typically capped at around $775. Over two hours, 400% of a one-way ticket is usually around $1,500, and that is the cap. It's important to know all of these things before you accept anything. Then you want to follow up with the airline's customer service to ensure you receive all due compensation. Remember to save your boarding passes, your originals, your news, any type of communication that you've received from the airline. Now, what if my luggage is lost? By law, airlines are required to reimburse passengers if their luggage is lost up to a maximum of $3,800 for domestic trips. It's recommended to take a photo of the contents inside your luggage once you're packed. So this way you can remember what's inside. Often the airlines will require or ask for proof. So this will help you with your proof. It's a good idea to get a bag tracker device as well. There are different ones, so I'm not going to endorse one over the other. Then the last question is, what other compensation am I entitled to? Well, the U.S. Department of Transportation clearly states that circumstances in which passengers are entitled to refunds, that includes canceled flights, significant schedule changes that the passenger does not agree to, downgrading to an economy or lower class, baggage fees associated with lost luggage, or an optional service like Wi-Fi or seat upgrades that the airline was ultimately unable to provide. You can find that information at transportation.gov. Look for aviation consumer protection and refunds. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. As for last minute Labor Day weekend deals, you might want to check out Google Flights Explore. Also, if you have the time and you have some flexibility, leave on Wednesday if you're flying and come back on Tuesday versus traveling on Thursday or Friday and certainly coming back Sunday or Monday. Those are going to be the most expensive times. But if you have those flexibility with dates, you can find some really good prices. Expedia is also another source for last-minute deals and finding where the deals are. Expedia will often give you some great ideas for packages, and they do offer better deals with packages. 
I am excited to speak to my next guest because one, from a place that I'm from, Washington, D.C., two, we're talking about Labor Day. And so many times Labor Day is just about the cookouts and who's bringing what, but there is some real historic significance about Labor Day. And there's some African-American history that is very instrumental to Labor Day as well. And the gentleman that I'm about to speak with has done some tours for me in Washington, D.C., specifically for African-American heritage tours. Kenny Burns, owner of KB Tours of Washington, D.C., is also a native Washingtonian. There aren't too many of us because Washington's a very transient place. But he's been a tour guide since 1989 and doing African-American heritage tours since 1996. Hello, Kenny, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Oh, hello there, fellow Washingtonian. You? <laughs> You're right. There's not too many of us around. And I'm always fascinated when people, they'll move into Washington and they'll say, well, I'm a Washingtonian now. I was like, okay, really? So the question I always ask people who think they know Washington is what high school is in Southwest Washington? And when people hesitate and they think about it, I know that they really don't know Washington, D.C., because there is no high school in Southwest Washington, D.C. That's how you can. Well, I was sitting here thinking, like, I don't know of a high school in Southwest, Southwest Washington, D.C. I went right. to Duke Ellington, which, you know, wasn't always Ellington, but I went to Duke Ellington and I'm originally from Southeast. Washington, D.C., and absolutely love being a Washingtonian. But I got nervous for a minute because I thought, I don't know of a high school in <laughs> Southwest D.C. <laughs> That's how you can separate the real Washingtonians from the ones who moved into Washington. I remember when Duke Ellington was called Western High School because mm -hmm. I went to Northwestern in Maryland. Ah, okay. And actually, when I became an adult, I moved into Southwest DC, not far from Arena Stage. So before I moved to Chicago, that's where I lived in Southwest DC and had lived there for, for a number of years. So yes, and elementary school, I went to Hardy Elementary School. I don't know if you're familiar. And I actually don't even know if it's still there, to be honest with you, but also in Georgetown, but Hardy Elementary School. Okay. Well, you know, back long time ago, over in Southwest was called Bloodfield. Yeah, and it lived up to its reputation, but that's for another tour. Oh, we'll definitely have to have you back to talk about that. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, you, but Labor Day, seriously, so many times we don't even think about the history of Labor Day. We think about current day labor and labor laws and labor rights and that we get a day off, <laughs> but we don't often think really about the history. And there are so many events in African-American history that are attributed to Labor Day and the history of Labor Day, but there are two people who are, I would say, at the top of that list, and they are A. Philip Randolph and Nanny Helen Burroughs. And so I definitely want to talk about them today and their significance and Washington, D.C. You know, Washington, D.C. is also instrumental and pivotal for Labor Day as well. It's, so with um, Asa Philip Randolph and doing some research about him, I was actually fascinated. So I just want to tell story. And it starts with Asa Philip Randolph 
becoming president of the Pullman Porters. Now, the Pullman Porters Union was the first black union in the United States to get a major contract with a major company, the Pullman Company. And this was a very big deal. And Asa Philip Randolph was kind of hard-nosed, very determined, because every other person who was president of the Pullman Porters Union failed. Some of them actually worked for the Pullman Porter Company, and they would sometimes just get rid of them. So enters Asa Philip Randolph. And I want to tell you a little bit about the Pullman Porters also, because this is part of Labor Day. And the Pullman Porters were men who worked on the railroad. They didn't build a railroad, but they worked on it. And they had a slogan, look, learn, and listen to what the customers did, what stocks they put their money in, what books and magazines they read. And the Pullman Porters were the best paid men of color in the United States, but the least paid on the railroad. So they formed a union and it took them a while to get a contract, but they finally did. Now, that's one part where Isa Philip Randolph played a part in labor. But then around the early 1940s, men and women of color were not allowed to work in factories. And these factories were making the war machine. They were making tanks, ships, planes, and this was good money. And Asa Philip Randolph saying, why aren't people of color working in these factories? So then he decided to go see the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt. So he has a a meeting with President Roosevelt. And Mr. Randolph said, well, President Roosevelt, I'm going to need some help from you. And we need to get men and women of color to work in a factory so they can make a good wage. And President Roosevelt said, well, I can't really help you because it was a political thing. And so Asa Philip Randolph, he did something that often, something I think of. You never have to be smarter than someone. You just have to outsmart them. So what Mr. Randolph did, he started New Negro America Day, where he was going to get thousands of people of color to come here to Washington to lobby Congress. And we're talking, he was trying to get like 100,000 people. So President Roosevelt hears about this. He said, oh, my goodness, could you come back to the White House and let's just talk about this? So Mr. Randolph goes back to the White House. So President Roosevelt said, tell me what you want. (laughs) So Mr. Randolph told him exactly what he wanted. I want you to make sure that Black people can work in the factories. So President Roosevelt wrote an executive order, 8802. 8802, with authorized, well, told factories to open up factories so people could work. Then he put a little cherry on top, something that Mr. Randolph didn't ask. He instructed the army to make a man of color a general. That man turned out to be Benjamin O. Davis, who later on helped with the Tuskegee Airmen. Also, the 8802, It was the second executive order that was written specifically for men and women of color. The first one was the Emancipation Proclamation. So then Mr. Randolph said, you know, I'm going to put that idea in my hip pocket. So later on, President Kennedy is not moving fast enough on civil rights. 
So Mr. Randolph calls up Dr. King, John Lewis, James Farmer, Whitney Young, and one other person, they were called the Big Six. And it was they who gathered together and planned the March on Washington. So labor and civil rights can't go hand in hand in this because 200,000 people came to Washington because they wanted jobs. They wanted the opportunity to work. They wanted the opportunity to live where they wanted to live at. So because of Asa Philip Randolph, we got people in the factories. We got hundreds of thousands of people, new jobs because of the civil rights bill. So that is my story about Asa Philip Randolph and labor. And, you know, again, a lot of times you said it's in the details. The excitement about a story is in the details. So when you think of March on Washington, and then you start peeling back the layers, you start discovering all of these other things and how people are connected and how all of these events are tied together and the importance of them and how they have impacted our lives today. So we can definitely thank a. Philip Randolph for not only his work with the Pullman Porters and to help them get unionized, but to create a bigger and better labor opportunity and force for African-Americans. So thank you so much for sharing that story. Now, I also want to talk about Nanny Helen Burroughs because she was very instrumental in Black suffragette movement. And so many times we don't necessarily talk enough about Black women and the efforts for civil liberties with women in general. Who was Nanny Helen Burroughs? Nanny Helen Burroughs was born in Virginia, and her father died, and she and her mother came here to Washington, D.C. to live. Now, she went to what's called now Dunbar High School. Uh, When she went there, it was called M Street School. Now, Dunbar High School turned out to be the first African-American high school in the United States. And obviously it's the oldest and still standing today. But anyway, she attended there and then she went on to work for various organizations. She was a bookkeeper and a secretary for the foreign mission of the National Baptist Convention. She also helped start the Women's Auxiliary of the National Baptist Convention. She established the National Training School for Girls in 1909. I thought this was interesting. Now, she and Mary McLeod Bethune had to know each other, had to. And both of them focused on young women. When Nanny Helen Burroughs first came up with this idea, she went to the Baptist Convention and they said, okay, they bought the land for it. Then she says, well, I need some buildings. This was kind of interesting to me where Booker T. Washington, he didn't believe that African-Americans would donate enough money for the school. And I always like to think you should never estimate us ever. So through small donations, she got enough money for the school. And the school taught young women and girls various occupations. She also was a member of the National Colored Women's Club, which was a very important organization. But Nanny Helen Burroughs, I thought this was kind of like indicative of the times. And she was a dark-skinned woman, and she wanted to teach in the schools. And because she was dark, they said, well, no, no, thank you. But she didn't let that deter her. One thing I liked about reading about her, she was an extremely determined woman. And 
I don't think no was in her vocabulary. So thanks to her, a lot of young women were, were trained in various occupations. She's also a great civil rights event. And I would have liked to have heard a conversation between her and Mary McLeod Bethune, because they're very similar. I can only imagine that conversation. Now, when I was in D.C., and I believe it was on one of your tours as well, we did visit the Mary McLeod Bethune home, but I don't know if we visited the home or site for Nanny Helen Burroughs. So tell us a little bit about the African-American heritage tours that you do and some of the places that are visited. Uh, Washington, D.C. is full of so much African-American history that's in front of us that people don't realize. Let's take the United States Capitol building. There's a statue on top of the Capitol. It was cast by African-American slave named Philip Reed. The first 22 men of color that were congressmen and senators all were Republican. There were no Black Democrats until the 1930s. This is an amazing part when I talk about the Capitol. The first two Black senators in the United States Senate were from Mississippi. And the first African-American senator, his name was Hiram Ravels. And in 1857, he was one of the few African-Americans that had a college education. Great place to go is the Martin Luther King Memorial. That memorial is full of wisdom. Now, people go there and they look at the likeness of Dr. King and think, man, this is great. And how tall it is his likenesses. But the thing that's most important about that memorial is the inscription wall. If you get a chance before you come to Washington, you know, download the inscriptions and research what Dr. King's talking about. And I tell this to young people all the time. This is something that Dr. King said, other than the fierce urgency of now, which I really like that quote. But Dr. King talks about time. He said, time is neither good or bad. Time is neutral. It's what you do with time that makes it good or bad. He says, if we do not band together as brothers, we will perish as fools. And war is the enemy of poor people because we take so much money for war instead of giving it to poor people. That's just some of the things. And he talks about the ultimate measure of a man. That memorial, if people would actually read those quotes and get the meaning out of it, it'd be far different. Like his last Christmas sermon, he talks about war. He said, now, in war, there's bad guys and good guys. I'm just paraphrasing this. But now, the good guys' weapons are even worse than the bad guys. So I thought, okay, what's Dr. King talking about? Then it dawned upon me. He's talking about the atom bomb. We're the good guys, and... We're the only ones who dropped the atom bomb. Dr. King was a brilliant man. You go to the Lincoln Memorial, and we already talked about the March on Washington. But what people don't know, when they dedicated the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Robert Moton did the dedication. He's from Tuskegee University. Now, before he gave his speech, a couple of days before he gave his speech, he had to submit his speech to William Howard Taft. Now, William Howard Taft is in charge of the ceremony. And Mr. Taft reads what 
Dr. Moten wrote. He said, wait a minute, this man is criticizing the president of the United States. He sends Dr. Moten a note. He says, I think you need to take out 500 words. That was the first time a black man had to change his speech. We all know about Congressman Lewis having to change his speech. Now, if you come to Washington, there's three places that I really, really hope you go. The Mary McLeod Bethune House, the Frederick Douglass House, and hopefully by February, the Carter T. Woodson House. Uh, Park Rangers do the tour there uh, at those three places, full of history. Those Rangers are excellent in storytelling and facts. And in May 2024, the Museum of African American Civil War will open. Now, this is going to be a whole new African-American Civil War Museum. There's a whole lot of high-tech things. You can look up your uh, ancestors who fought in the Civil War. There's a lot of information there. That is going to be a must-stop in Washington, D.C. So on my tour, I go to all four quadrants of Washington. People come here to Washington, D.C. and think Washington is just the mall. It's so much more to Washington than the mall. Like you take Georgetown. Georgetown University there were 272 enslaved people that Georgetown College owned. Georgetown College needed some money, and they sold these enslaved men and women. So a few years ago, Georgetown said, we need to do something. So when they sold these enslaved men and women, they sold them to one town in Louisiana. So Georgetown goes back to that one town, and I guess they did some research and found out there were 5,000 ancestors of those 272 men and women that were still living. So if you're one of those ancestors, supposedly you'd be able to go to Georgetown for free. Now, the first man of color to be a president of a white university in the United States was Father Patrick Healy, and he was the president of Georgetown University. So when you go to Georgetown, you see that big building, that's Healy Hall named after Patrick Healy. Plus, you got U Street, Ben's Chili Bowl. Can't come near Washington, D.C. without going to Ben's Chili Bowl. It's supposed to have a big celebration next week. They've been open since, I think, 1956. And another must-stop is Howard University, the real HU in America. And you might want to drive past the Howard Theater. Now, Howard Theater is the oldest African-American theater in the United States. It's actually older than the Apollo. Yes, I know. And, and a lot of people don't really know that and the amount of talent that came through there. So I did want to go back to the African-American Civil War Memorial. So it closed because I've visited it before. So you're saying it closed for renovations and now it's going to reopen in 2024, brand new? Brand new. We took a tour through there and it's virtual. And you say something to it, it'll talk back to you. What they did is they gutted a building. And they're putting up all this new high-tech stuff. And like I said, it should be opening in April or May of next year. But please go by there. And please go by Bethune House, the Douglas House, and the Bethune House, because they're depending on people coming through there for their funding. Because the Bethune House was closed for two years. Frederick Douglas House was closed for three years. And the Woodson House has been closed for two or three years. So... We need these places open so our young people can learn. 
Absolutely. We have to know our history and history is fascinating to me. And there are so many sites, especially African-American sites that need the support to make sure that they stay there and that we keep them and that part of history alive. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm looking forward to doing another one of your tours. I'm sure we're going to do another one in the near future. So what's your website for anyone who would like to know more it's, about you and the tours that you do. It's kbtours, T-O-U-R-S dot com. kbtours at msn.com. Fantastic. We do, yeah, we do daily African-American heritage tours. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And you will learn a lot about Washington, D.C. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again. Nice chatting with you as always and looking forward to seeing you again soon. Always good to talk to a fellow Washingtonian. You have a great day. <laughs> you too. When we come back, I've got the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Are you planning to travel? Looking for connections with airlines, resorts, hotels, cruise ships, new fashions, or places for family reunions and getaways? Join us October 7th and 8th, 2023 for the Port of Go International Destination and Travel Expo. It's taking place at the Renaissance Convention Center in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. The Port of Go is your all-things travel expo designed for everyone to discover where to go and the best deals. To learn more, visit portofgo.com. That's P-O-R-T of go.com. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com, and make sure you join that travel club because we go to some fantastic places and you'll want to be the first to know when we're on the go. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report, and I am super excited to speak with Marvina Robinson, the founder of V. Stuyvesant, a champagne brand. You know, if you listen to me often, you know champagne is one of my favorite pastimes. So hello, Marvina, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Thank you so much. I am really excited to be here. Absolutely. When I came across your story, and I have to tell you that a friend of mine had already bought me a bottle of one of your <laughs> bubbly, so I had an opportunity to give it a taste. There are four of us, and we love wine and food and culture and all of those things. And we often like to find Black-owned products, and we share them with one another. So when she came across your product, she sent all of us a bottle. So we were super excited about that. So, yeah. So tell me, how did you get started on the path and journey of champagne? You know what? It was actually a hobby of mine, something that I truly loved, true champagne enthusiasts. And I was just poking around playing. This was not my industry. I worked in Wall Street for 20 years. And I would send my friends, clients, some co-workers that I like, bottles of champagne, and not opting for the big popular houses, but more for growers' champagne, 
to make it more interesting, to give them the story behind the actual bottle. There's a story behind every bottle of wine. But champagne, it's a, in my opinion, it's a bigger story because there's so much manual labor to go into a bottle. I want people to know about the different growers out there. And that was where it started at. And as I stated, true champagne lover, I decided I wanted to open up a champagne bar featuring grower champagnes, more vintages, harder bottles to find. And that's what B. Stuyvesant actually came into. It was going to be the house brand of the champagne bar. Ah, okay. And so the champagne bar that you have, again, is located where? So I didn't open it because our good friend COVID came by and stayed way longer than anticipated. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I've actually decided that I'm going to open the champagne bar in 2024, which is why I had inventory and somebody requested some bottles during the peak of the pandemic. And at first I wasn't going to put it out there, but I did. And the brand just began to evolve and take off on its own organically. And I decided that this is the business and I put some more effort to expanding the portfolio. I am considered like a new champagne in the industry. So not just having one or two coupés, but we have like eight coupés in the portfolio because everybody has a different palette. So I wanted to make sure something for everybody's palette. Well, yes. And I'm glad you decided to do that during COVID because that allowed my friend to be able to purchase <laughs> a bottle online. And it's a great time and space that we're in right now, right? Because I, I mean, I know that you would have ultimately wanted to launch when you planned to, but COVID got in the way. But this online presence that we're able to have really is a wonderful thing and allows us to march on when some other things happen with brick and mortars, right? <laughs> yeah, probably wasn't my ideal plan, but it worked out for the better for me. It gave a new business a lot more shine, quicker than normal. We created a buzz, an instant buzz, which still carries us to this day. And I'm happy we started online getting kinks out. We just recently opened up our headquarters in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And now we're, you know, still growing and thriving, hosting in our tasting room. And like I said, next year will be the expansion to open up the, the original plan, which is the champagne bar. Yes. Well, I want to learn a little bit more about that leap that you took to turn your passion and your hobby, if you will, into a full-time venture. Yeah, so like I said, it wasn't planned. I worked in Wall Street for 20 years and I would just say the firms I worked at were amazing. A great set of people surrounding to work with, extremely smart and talented. But for me internally, I was having my own struggles where I just didn't want to do finance anymore, but I just didn't know what I wanted to do. In addition, I wasn't prepared to walk away from the good salary, the good bonus, the perks of having a full-time permanent job, let alone one that was financially rewarding to go to what industry I, I didn't know. And then for myself, I battled becoming a full-time entrepreneur because there I was just going to the nomad's land, not knowing what your income is going to be at, stability that you have. But at one time, I just say, you know what? I'm unhappy here. I'm happy doing what I love. So I just took the leap of faith and said the Nike slogan, just do it. And everything kind of fell into place for me as far as thought-wise, right? 
Then I had to put this business together, structure it together, which I'm still doing. And I have staff that I'm now responsible for. So all these things came into play. And people always ask me that question, like, how do you make the change? You'll just know when you're ready. Like, I can tell you everything that I was going through. And then I said, particularly with faith, but you have to feel it within yourself when you're ready to make a change. And for me, I felt like I'm going to go out on this limb and I'm going to do it. And it's nothing I fully thought about. Things were just going in a different streamline for me, like different things were occurring in my life, both work-wise, professionally, mentally, like as far as like, I just was struggling internally, like how do I do this full-time, but also keep my salary? So that's probably the hardest thing. It is. It's a scary jump (laughs) to become an entrepreneur. And you were an entrepreneur with some other ventures before you decided to follow your true passion, which was to open a premium champagne bar in Brooklyn, some of which were still very much in the vein of culture, a cafe of coffee. And also, I read that an art business as well. Yeah, so that's way back. I used to love like street art. I still do love street art. Like if you come in here, into our office headquarters. It's a lot of street art, specifically graffiti street art. We just actually also released this really cool box. It's a Brooklyn-themed graffiti box. I worked with a graffiti artist in Indonesia to create the artwork for me. But yeah, I ordered Anagram. It was a sneaker art business. Then I also owned a cafe and an indoor cycling studio in Brooklyn. All of those, myself still working full-time, not giving it 100%. It was there, but I wasn't always 100% invested in it. The big question, because you're in Brooklyn and you're calling it champagne, and we know that champagne has to come from champagne. So let's talk a little bit more about the bottle itself and the grapes and calling it champagne. Well, yep, it can be called champagne, because champagne can only be called, so if it's grown in the Champagne region of France, if it has two fermentations in the bottles and they use a certain set of grapes. Those are the three primary components. And we do grow harvest in Epernay region of France, which is in, within the Champagne region. Our primary grapes that we use is Mounier, Pignon Noir, and Chardonnay grape. Each coupe that we have has different components. So yes, I am from Brooklyn. The brand is called B. Stuyvesant after the neighborhood I was grown and raised in. So yes, it is actual true champagne. And we actually, so funny, people ask this question all the time. So it was now an FAQ question on our page. Well, yes, because especially those who like champagne, they want to know and understand that. And those who don't, it's a good lesson to learn and why you sometimes have sparkling wine or Prosecco or champagne to understand what all of those differences are. So when you launch in 2024, will you also serve or sell other champagnes. Give us an idea of what the champagne bar will actually look like, a place to just come and purchase champagne, or will it be a place to enjoy and be coupled with entertainment as well? So it will be like a true champagne bar where we will sell 90% of champagne. It will probably not be the popular brands that you know, because those are quite easy to get. So then you can always go to a store to buy those. What my goal is, is to expose different grower champagne that's currently not represented here in the States, because I also own the importing side of my business. So I will use 
my license to import them over so that they can be distributed to this future venue. We will have some still wines, but not a large selection. What we compose of B-Stuyvesant will be the house brand, but there will be other brands that will rotate on and off the menu. And if we do have some of the larger brands, you know, they have some great selections. I want to highlight and feature more vintages or some of the more higher-end ones so that people have an opportunity to taste by the glass and not have to worry about ordering by the bottle. So tell me a little bit more about, as you said, you wanted to address different tastes and flavor profiles and what we can expect from B. Stuyvesant. So right now, B. Stuyvesant has eight coupes in a portfolio. Two of them are limited editions, which means they roll on and off in the portfolio. And some we only produce in small batches. So we have a new cuvee coming out this holiday season, which is Eminence. It is an extra brew. It is probably one of our top tier bottles. We also have a new cuvee that will be out for the, I want to say spring. I might try to get into production by March. We have a Rosé Prestige limited edition, which has these beautiful bottles on the bottle. So now this will be the Brute Prestige. So those are coming to the bottle. We produce many bottles, not often, once a year. Last year, the first time we produced it, we produced a Ante Blanc and a Reserve. This will be our first year in the holiday season producing rosé in a mini bottle. Those are some of the things I'm really looking forward to and what I adore about the portfolio and then having the creativity to work with our vineyard to create these beautiful wines. We have the amazing experience to be able to ship to 48 states thanks to some of my shipping partners. So on our website, directly stuyvesantchampagne.com on the shop tab, you're able to shop our beautiful selection. We have a lot of different stores that carry the brand. On our website, on the FAQ, we list some of the stores that's outside of New York. And if you have any questions, you can always just send us an email or check out our Instagram page, Stuyvesant Champagne, and then we get back to you. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been lovely chatting with you and looking forward to seeing more down the line. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for inviting me here. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.